Morning. Those words we sang are very powerful if we truly believe those. And again, believing it by what James says, faith without works is what? So we can claim we believe that holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And if somehow it doesn't find its way down into our lives, it really becomes useless. For those that are visiting this morning, we've been engaged in a series in the book of James and This morning, we're going to be starting James chapter 4 that really talks about the influence of our world. And it talks about the church. And it speaks to it really in a kind of negative setting. But let me remind you that James says, listen, it's time for us to grow up. And so we enter this subject that we often talk about called worldliness. And James says it's a hard issue. And he says, there's too many Christians that decide to live life their own way. Where God is there when they feel appropriate for him to be there. And it's kind of like, well, don't call me God, I'll call you. It's a convenient use of God. But of course, the convenient use of God is the ultimate exclusion of God, isn't it? Some people call it the gospel of consumerism, the gospel of me. Others have claimed it's practical atheism, where we sit here and we can confess this mighty truth about who Jesus is. And then he has no or little influence in our lives. And James says, worldliness shows up in the church when you fight about And there's a list of things that he gets into. Now, here's how I want to unpack this this morning. I want to talk about a basic principle and then break this principle down and look at the tension that exists between the church and the world. After I do that, I want to then have us share in communion because it really relates to this experience that we do every month Then after communion, I want to finish with James chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, the evidence of your worldliness is this, rather than the evidence that you are following Christ. So that's where we're going this morning. Here's the principle. We are called not to be influenced by the world, but to influence the world. Say that with me. We are called not to be influenced by the world, but to influence the world. But what does that mean? I mean, John writes these words in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and note the key word here. The key word is desires. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then we have passages that we memorize as little kids if you were raised in a church. John 3.16, for God so loved the what? The world. So what is he talking about? We know according to Genesis 1 and 2 that people in this world that we know was created by God and for us and for him And for our good and for his good. In fact, after he created everything that we see, he made this proclamation. He says, it was very good. So we know when he talks about 
do not love the world, it can't be people, it can't be creation, it can't be those kinds of things. But going back to this passage here, again, the key word is desires. What the world really means in this text is it's culture apart from God. It's, we call it philosophy, core values, ideologies. And James says often it's selfish and it's hedonistic. It's full of pride. It's all about me. But we have to ask the question, why is this important? You know, what is this spiritual maturity? Why is it such a big deal? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to second, I mean, not second Peter, but first Peter chapter two. There's been some things that have been kind of mulling in my mind, in my heart, and I don't know if I'll do a good job expressing it this morning. But first Peter talks about really two things. One is what the church is. He describes it with an imagery that makes sense in our world. And then he talks about this remarkable tension that exists between the world and the church. And I want to look at both those things this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone. Now, prior to this, he was called the chief cornerstone. So he is a living, alive, but he is the cornerstone. And every builder knows that the cornerstone is what everything else rests on. That whatever you choose, your cornerstone will dictate every aspect of that building. So Christ is the chief cornerstone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Then here's what he says the church is. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, note the plural there, you yourselves. He's not talking about this individualistic spirit. He's talking about a collective group of community that we're in this together. That God's desire through Jesus Christ is to build a spiritual house, all of us. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to go on in a moment to explain what this means, but here's what the church is. We are living stones, and we're aligned with Christ, the chief cornerstone. Now, you realize that everyone has a cornerstone that you build on. If it's not Christ, it will be something else. And again, let me emphasize it's you, it's plural, it's being built. The word there is what's called a present progressive, which means it was, it is, and it will be. So it's continual. And Peter stresses the interdependent relationship that is critical to the building. So we have this image of a house built from a wall of stones. And what happens when you pull a stone out? The wall begins to shake. And every other stone is impacted. So what we are, what the church is, we are called to be a connected community. We are called to be built into each other's lives that if you stop coming, you would shake the wall. What that means is every single person here 
is valuable to the spiritual house. And if you start saying things like, well, I don't fit in, or I don't belong, or I'm alone, I'm lonely, those are the lies of the demons that are in your own soul. Because God says, you're needed, you're wanted, and you're there. So you need to realize this morning that every single one of you is important. Let me stop for a moment and give a commercial for next week. You need to be here next week. Uh, We're going to have nine people enter into the waters of baptism. And here's what's interesting about this group. We got some little ones. (laughs) We got some teenage ones. We got some in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. We will not start talking about those that are in their 50s. But we got someone from almost every single generation. And they're part of this spiritual wall. And what that means is we share. We share our decisions. We share in our money. We share our homes. We share our struggles. We share everything. We are a connected community. Everyone is important to that building. So that's what the church is. And tragically, in our gospel consumerism, what we do is we make it about us and we remove ourselves from the chief cornerstone and we never quite find what we're looking for. That perfect church. That church is just my way. Now think about our culture in America. We're very individualistic and personal. According to Barna, 80% of Christians today believe they can live a flourishing life with God without a church. Now, according to Peter, that's a very distorted view of Christ and his body. He says we are a collective. We are built together. We are a community. And if we are that spiritual house, a holy priesthood, making spiritual sacrifices, we have to ask the question then, how do we relate to other communities? And this is where the whole topic of worldliness comes in. See, Scripture tells us there's this deep tension between the church and the world around us. Now, if you look at sociologists, anthropologists, historians, they all agree, and they put different names to this. I'm going to choose just two that they talk about. They may be good, they may not be good, but... They agree that there's two predominant ways communities relate to their world. Just not a Christian community or another religious community or a racial community. But this is just true that when there's this community of people and they try to relate to other people, there's two predominant ways. The one's called sectarian. It's separate. The world is them. So it's them against us. It's exclusive. There's very high walls. They got high doctrines to get in. It's fundamental. They vilify the world, and they say, we alone stand for the truth. So they become this little sectarian, isolated. They're their own people, their own tribe, and they don't let anybody else in unless you become just like them. The second is what they call chaplains. This is the mainstream. They don't talk about the world as them. They talk about the world as us. There's no requirements. They say, just come home. It's inclusive. They love everyone, and they desire to be loved by all. Now, Peter, what's interesting here is he tells us there's a balance. There's this tension. And the goal of the church is not to fix the tension. 
but rather manage the tension. Look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Some translations have the word alien. What it really means is foreigners. Okay? So immediately Peter says, listen, as followers of Jesus, our culture does not shape us. Who shapes us is Christ. And that's why you often hear me say things like, we are a counterculture. We are different. Now, let's illustrate with who Peter was writing to, the Christians in Rome. And the Romes, Rome, Rome had their own culture. And when Christ came and followers of Jesus followed Christ, they looked at their lifestyle and they just thought, you know, these people are really weird. Let me go down through the list. As a Christian, they chose not to attend bloodthirsty sporting events in the Colosseum. Unless they were the sport, then they had no choice. Two, Christians were against abortion and infanticide. In Rome during this time, if a child was not the gender that the parents desired, they were permitted to leave the child out in the elements until it died. That was normal behavior. Abnormal behavior was people came along and said, you can't do that. And so Christians literally would take these children up and raise them as their own. Three, the Christian church empowered women in ways that was very different than society did. And to Rome, that was just strange. Four, Christians were against sex outside of marriage, and Rome thought that was just weird. Fifth, they were against same-sex relationships, and again, Rome thought that was weird. Sixth, they allowed mixed races and classes together in their gatherings. And that was considered scandalous. You didn't mix the tribes, and you didn't mix the races, and you didn't mix slaves and masters and rich and poor. Seven, they were radically committed to the poor. And number eight, Christ was the only way to salvation. Now, during the time that Peter was writing, the culture never saw a group of people like this. And that's why Peter says, you're foreigners. You're aliens, you're sojourners depending upon the translation you have. So what about today? Think about this. If you were to talk about empowering women, standing for racial social justice, radically committed to the poor, you would be viewed as what? A liberal progressive. But if you talk about forbidding abortion, forbidding sex outside marriage, forbidding same-sex relationships, if you're insistent that Jesus is the only way, you'd be viewed as what? a conservative, a fundamental. And Peter's point is this. We don't fit in. Whenever you choose the values of the gospel, you will be foreigners. But he also said you're exiles. And when you put these two words together, it really comes to the word resident alien. It means, yes, you're a foreigner, but this is where you live. This is home. You got permanent resident status. You're not a tourist. You're not a visitor. Peter says, this is the world you live in. And you don't pack your bags and wait for Jesus to come, saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. No, you engage in the culture around you. 
And so Peter says, we are not called to assimilate or attack, but we are called to live. Look at verse 12. Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, so people are going to accuse you of things you're not guilty of. They may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you see the tension there? On one hand, they call you all kinds of names for what you believe. On the other hand, they say, wow, you know, they're actually doing some good things here. It's about the closest thing that is said by Jesus when he says, you're a city on the hill. You're the light of this world. But here's what Peter's saying. If you maintain your Christ-like values, if you give yourself to serve, to do good, to get involved, he says the world will reject you, but it also will recognize you. It will vilify you. It'll call you evil, but it'll also see the good and the beauty that you do. And it's true with every culture we engage in. Let me give you an example. Let's say you take what the Bible says about sex, family, and gender and forgiveness and reconciliation, and you go to the Middle East. They'll sit down and they'll say things like this. Well, we really like what you're saying about family, sex, and gender, but this reconciliation, forgiveness, no, no, no. We live eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We, we don't like that. We like this, but we don't like that. Take that same message to New York City. What will they say? They'll say, hey, we love what you're saying about love, reconciliation, forgiveness. But this sex, family, gender stuff, it's regressive. It's evil. Do you understand what Peter's saying? We don't fit in. But we're called to bear witness. And you will be different. And we will serve. And what an incredible vision this is. What a powerful vision. That we as a church are called to follow Jesus. Now let me talk about communion for a little bit. By the way, here in a moment we're going to practice communion. And we do what's called open communion. It means if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to join with us. You don't have to be membership or go through classes or anything like that. So if you believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, feel free to join in. We also hold the elements, which means when the bread's passed, you hold, we'll partake together as a collective community. We do the same thing for the cup. But let me ask this question. What are we doing? Every month on the first Sunday, what are we doing? Here's the problems I see it. In American culture, we who have been created in the image of God like to recreate God in our image. What that means is we use Jesus to get stuff. Jesus said, if you follow me, and this is what we're remembering, we're remembering ourselves following Jesus. You may die, you may lose everything, but you will gain freedom in life. You will not be enslaved to those desires that John talked about. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the pride of life. They will not control you. They will not destroy you anymore. If you follow me, if you truly follow me, there will be no force on this earth that will stop you, not even the gates of hell. So when we think about communion this morning, 
Think about we cannot make Jesus in our image. We cannot dilute this gospel. And as we partake, we're called to bear witness of this Christ that we are remembering. And bearing witness, we mean this is what the church is. It's a connected community. It is a counter-cultural. We are in the world, but not of the world. And we are here to be incredible lights. Think about the living stone. And you're going to see some stories, and you're going to hear some stories. I say see because there's flesh and blood attached to these stories. You're going to hear and see stories next week of living stones that are part of this church. It really what this means to be in this together. I'm going to invite those that are going to be helping serve communion in the elements just to come forward right now. And I want to continue to read 1 Peter chapter 2 as they do this. So they come up and the band can come up on stage. And um, by way of tradition, we do sing some songs. If you want to sit there and reflect, you're more than free to do that. But listen to this verse that, that Peter writes after he talks about what the church is. And he talks about how this tension in the world is. He gives us the example of Christ. This is what we're celebrating. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Here's the tension that exists. They called him evil. He did not return evil for evil. When he suffered, he did not threaten when he continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly, he, bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live righteous. Read this last phrase with me because this is so important. By his wounds, you have been healed and are being healed and will be healed. Let's reflect upon this incredible Jesus and who we are through communion. You guys can be seated. We have an incredible God, don't we? And uh, I'm a bit in a quandary now because the rest of my message talks about what James talks about, and it isn't pretty. (laughs) I mean, here's what he says in James chapter 4, verse 1. He actually says, the first place... Worldliness shows up is in sinful conflict with each other. What quarrels, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it the greatness of God? No. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So James talks about these external conflicts. He talks about this incredible thing called the body of Christ. And the church is this living stone that's built on the chief cornerstone. But when you make yourself the chief cornerstone, this is what happens. That should break our hearts. There's a lot of this I can get into next week. I think that's too much of a downer after kind of what we've been and where we've been, isn't it? Amen. And uh, so... 
Go to the last slide, Tom. How do we respond? You understand we have the choice to get into the quarrels and the fights. And we're going to talk about next week that we're led there by ourselves with inside us. It's not everybody else is the problem. It's our hearts. Amen. And so we'll unpack that next week and look at that. But I just think about how great our God is and three things that we have to respond if we are going to be the church that God calls to be and not get into all that conflict over things that do not matter. I got to tell you, my 40 years, pastor, I've been threatened by things that do not matter. Translations of Bibles, music, clothing. I still remember one time, even being, we were, we were going to be part of a Billy Graham crusade and a family threatened to leave if we did that because Billy Graham really isn't a sanctified believer, as they put it. I read a story of Andy Stanley Jr. when he was a kid at a council meeting and one of the people in his church, an elder, okay, this was a spiritually mature or supposed to be a spiritually mature individual, came in disagreement with Pastor Charles Stanley. And what did he do? He decked him right in the council meeting. James chapter one. He wasn't operating according to the chief cornerstone. He was operating out of himself and his passions and his desires. And Andy says what amazed him was how his dad graciously did not retaliate, but kept him the mission of the church. So how do we respond this morning? Three things. We admit Christ. We put him as that chief cornerstone, that living chief cornerstone, and we are living stones built upon him. Everything that we think and say and do, this connected community, we're going to have different preferences and different opinions and different ideologies. But one thing we have in common is Jesus Christ. Amen? Number two, find Christ precious. What does that mean? Think of it this way. You go to your doctor this week, and he tells you that you have one week to live. He says, but over here, he says, I got some medicine that if you take this, this will cure you, and you can live for many, many years. But I got bad news. That medicine's really expensive. In fact, you probably have to sell your house and live in a trailer. You have to sell your car and buy a car that might be worth 500 bucks. You'll have to get rid of your pension funds, your savings accounts, everything in order to buy this medicine because it's so expensive. What are you going to do? You're going to say, bring it on because all this stuff doesn't matter if I only got seven days to live. To find Christ precious means we give up everything. He is the pearl of great price in one of the stories that Jesus tells where someone goes out and literally sells all his assets, all his money to purchase this one thing because that one thing is worth far more than all that stuff together. That's why Paul says in Philippians, everything I considered before was rubbish, it was trash, it's dung, it's no good. For the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So we have to admit him, we have to find him precious. He is to drive us. And then finally, we have to align ourselves with Christ. So when you build, you align everything with the chief cornerstone. If you don't, 
the building will collapse. The three things, admit Christ, find Christ precious, and align yourself with Christ. Amen? I am going to, you guys don't always know this, but I changed all this up last night. I called Chris at 9 o'clock and said, we're going to do it differently this morning. I'm going to change it again. Uh, where's Chris at? Can we do a reprise of what we just did? Would you like to do that? I think it's a great way to end this service. So as they come, I want to pray for you. Father God, you are this incredible God and forgive us for times that we get so caught up in ourselves that we fight over things that do not matter. That's hard for us to see. It's hard for us to hear. It's hard for us to admit. But so often we allow our preferences to drive us rather than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is this great, incredible God. I pray that you help us be a church that lives in the tension of this world where, yeah, some things are going to say, wow, they are just so out of step, but wow, look at the good that they do over here. That's incredible. Help us be true to the chief cornerstone. Help us to worship this great living God that we sing about, that we talk about, that we claim we live about. And we pray this in the incredible name of Jesus, because you alone are worthy that we celebrate this morning through communion And everyone said, let's stand as we worship.